Thanks for joining this podcast for the BJSM community. It's a great pleasure to be in New Zealand with Pete Gallagher. Pete is the physiotherapist for the New Zealand All Blacks in rugby, and he's had a tremendous experience there over 12 years. Before that, he had other rugby experience, of course, but he also worked in triathlon. So he has an endurance background, and uh, we're having a chat after the Sports Physio New Zealand SPNZ Roadshow, where Jill Cook and um, local sports medicine experts have been sharing wisdom over a week in New Zealand. Pete, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. So let's begin with the challenge of return to play, which is a big uh, topic right now all over the world. You've had a lot of experience in deciding when players are ready to return to play or not. And so what goes through your mind in an ACL situation? Well, I guess in, in terms of um, the decision-making about you know return to play, there's no doubt that it's always convenient to put a date out there, or at least a, a time, I guess, at you know, six months, say, post-surgery, when a surgeon's comfortable that they think a, a person or a player has actually you know, gone through the rehabilitation fundamentals in terms of range of motion, strength, um, proprioceptive training, neuromuscular training, and then entering into the performance field. And, and we find with our surgeons, they really leave it in our hands. But ultimately, we get to a point where we have to become part of a return to work program effectively, where we have strength and conditioning staff involved, obviously with the team doctor as well. And also with even our mental skills kind of coach side of things in terms of making sure the person doesn't have, you know, anxiety issues that might be kind of um, leading them down a path of, of uh, despair or even the overzealous athlete who's kind of pushing themselves too fast in, in lieu of a, a date they've picked that they feel they need to return to play in regards to a selection issue. Taking all the noise out of the environment, the key thing is, is that uh, players effectively under the guidance of their staff uh, and in really in the case of say the physio and the strength and conditioning coach uh, we work on a model that basically we, we get them to a, a stage in regards to their physical parameters where they're starting to look at you know being able to kind of uh, participate in fitness tests uh, whether it's a yo-yo or giving us something that's a baseline in regards to speed we can start introducing them into kind of more sports specific activities or work related activities we're privileged enough with our group of coaches that uh, we kind of have shared responsibility. I wouldn't uh, ever deem myself to be an expert in any part of the game that I work with at the moment, outside of the fact that if it's a forward, I'll be working with a forwards coach in regards to specific skill acquisition. So even though we're confident in terms of the timelines and say the physical parameters again, um, you know, we think we've got the athlete ready to do their job, we slowly progress them into like, I guess, an adaptive kind of um, stage of their program where they'll start doing sports specific activities um, in the forward sense you know line out and scrum work that may be related to specific kind of I guess we call them primer drills that we'd see them do in our lead into any set piece training and then introduce them slowly into set piece under the guidance of of the coach effectively coaching them with um, the physio standing sideline uh, checking on I guess the the safety parameters that we have in place for them. The main thing is I think that we we really are proving to ourselves and to the athlete that they're capable to return to play but do the tasks specific to the role that they have. So yes, they're an ACL athlete, but they also need, need to go out there and play at the level required, but also make uh, decisions and be able to execute skills effectively without really being worried about the knee. So there's no specific um, formula. 
or I guess recipe for this, it's more about having trusting relationships with other providers and ensuring at certain points, particularly with selectors and head coaches, etc., that they're well aware of where the person's at because invariably they'll be having the conversation with the athlete anyway, but you just want to make sure that um, that really they're ready to go when, when their name's called. And is there some specific meeting you know, at a table or how does their decision actually made and who takes final responsibility? Yeah, that's a good point. I think, you know, from a medical legal perspective, even in our country, you know, it still rests on the shoulders of the doctor. But the reality is the doc works alongside all of us and we're part of a collective decision making process where the athlete will be part of conversations with key providers and coaching staff in the room in regards to when they should return to play. The last thing we want to do is hang anyone out to dry or perceive that we're trying to get a person available, as I say, for a certain selection time unless it actually really suits them. Round World Cups, it becomes difficult, obviously, because, you know, there are selection parameters set down by World Rugby that they have to be named at a certain time. So there can be some grey areas. Uh, But if you've got the right people in the room talking and planning sensibly ahead, then hopefully, you know, you'll make the right decision. And it is a collective decision. Um, of coaches and our medical staff effectively in terms of the availability. Now let's move on to the topic of players recovering from an injury and having lower training periods for a while, having to lower their load for a period of time. Does that worry you as a physio that they might be setting themselves up for other injuries? I think the key thing we've found over the years is that, you know, it's easy to rest people or have them sideline on a bike or something training, effectively being a cross-training athlete. I think some of the things I've learned over time is that uh, the bike and the, the erg, rowing erg, don't really provide the eccentric stress or load that any muscle group or joint or ligament requires to actually be able to tolerate the weight-bearing activities. So you don't want to cross-train them to death and just say they're available for the weekend. The key thing is really to maintain a normal training week structure where effectively they have the tra- same training week as the other athletes who are available for selection. Uh, or fully fit or fitter than your athlete who might be selected more to participate than to f- perform if a coach is under pressure. Um, the reality is, is that if we just modify their training but at the same time provide progressive loads so they get back to the level they need to be at to be an international rugby player, then we are putting them on a path of trying to protect them, I guess, through actually being better conditioned athletes than to do them a disservice by deconditioning them over a period of time by looking after them. So we think that may be a point of difference for us is that we're really trying to keep them in the game even when they're not available for selection or if they are carrying a niggle or something that requires modified um, activities, they're still getting the the core activities done that require them to do their job well on and off the park. So the gym program is still in place. The the Yes, there may be off-feet conditioning, but most of their training effectively is still done. If they're not really up to it, they shouldn't be on the field. What do these modified trainings look like when they're being done well? I think the thing, if, they, if they're capable of being on their feet, they should be on their feet. And um, that, that is a really key point in regards to just making sure that even, even though you can reduce some of the training volume, for example, in a rugby training scenario, there's obviously a prepare-to-train or warm-up type window, then coaching specific activities that last for a period of time, and then obviously individual work-ons at the end of training. And we know from each training from our experience for a number of years now how long those trainings are going to take place and what the type of intensity of, of activity the athlete will be in. And if the athlete's shadowed, they may get enough done, if that makes sense, to, to do their job in the weekend coming, um, because it's still about the mental and physical kind of, um, I guess, preparation that needs to go on, and the confidence of the athlete themselves, they can do their job. And if they can't do their job through, I guess, I guess a modified load, 
you know, the modified load may be you've done enough today to prove that you're going to be safe out there and be able to play the game at the level you need to be able to. And the top-up session may be, for example, on a bike, or it may be that they go away and do more passive-related skills, catch-pass skills, for example, versus, say, um, working on, uh, say, controlled contact, uh, clean-out around a ruck, for example, or contact area, or even tackle practice. So... The thing is you just need to know that you're making a good decision that you're not hanging them out to dry and I think that's really important as the physio and the S&C and the coaching staff that you really prove to them they're fit and available but you're topping them up where you need to. The challenge is not to top them up week to week to week because ultimately people run out of gas and physically whatever they're managing or being managed with you know whether it's an ankle or a knee or we might even talk about a patella tendon load in terms of jump land. Um, it's a slippery slope you're on if you actually modify them for too often. There has to be a period of reconditioning somewhere, reconditioning on their feet. You've just got to find a window in the in the in the uh, competition kind of uh, plan, if you like, where you can actually do that. It takes a lot of convincing because people want to play and coaches need players, but there's a time you have to recondition as well. And it does bring us to load and load monitoring, really, doesn't it? And how do you think that's changed um, from 10 years ago or you know, even two years ago? What are some things that you think um, folks who are trying to optimise load management should be doing? Uh, I think you know, there's a lot more data available, obviously, in terms of um, knowing how far people have run and, and what intensity of running they've done. And I have to admit, we, we don't drill too far down uh, if we know basically that the fundamental um, requirements in terms of distance travel and high-intensity running are kind of met. Uh, so we, we have an idea of what an international athlete should be training or what a training week would look like and we really, within a percentage, not a measured percentage but a common sense percentage, we have an idea of how much they've done or if they've overdone it or underdone things. We haven't probably got the time in the week we're trying to prepare. If we, rest, if we just sit on our science or put our science hats on, we'd probably detract from the fact that we're preparing a group of athletes to ex um, to execute a certain skill set. So they have to do their skill set training, and it may just be that we modify some of their other kind of extra add-ons, if you like. So an athlete who is a little underdone from a conditioning perspective, and they may be out for a period of time, or their game load may be reduced, it may we'll make a decision based on the training or what the day has looked like. Um, with our S&C coaches hat on effectively whether they should be doing um, on-fit training or off-fit training as a top-up. So we're still kind of building the engine as we go, but we're just making good decisions based on good simple data that we are getting through GPS. And, you know, the RPE load, you know, the reliability of those obviously is, is you know, is, well, if you know your athletes, it's probably reliable, and if they trust you, they'll probably be honest with you. Um, but at the same time, coaches' RPE loads often don't match to that of the players. So it's a matter of having conversations on the field and making decisions as you go along. Before we're done, I do want to touch on the mental game. And you've, I think it's one of the reasons for your success with the team is you understand players' mentality. Um, I know you individualise how you speak to them. How do you avoid players being fearful of um, things that could injure them in the long term? Oh, I think, you know... Um, we try and have a very open, honest environment where basically we, you know, you have to, I guess, look for the cues that exist within the, the, the athlete population or at least the athlete and, and notice that, you know, the modification that's been made may be more than just a, you know, they might be hedging a little bit in terms of how, how good they really are. We, the protective side of things is if we really have an issue with a player we're worried about, then we'll basically sit down as a smaller group of providers, the key providers in the room, and just work out exactly what's uh, 
what the needs or what the significant issue is. So we probably try and be a little bit more vulnerable within our environment instead of stoic, I guess, in terms of some of the issues that kind of come. They're very real, and we know if we talk about them, then uh, we can actually come up with a solution. So I think the main thing is we, I think we've worked together for a long period of time now, and hopefully the players trust us. But obviously there's a generational change each kind of four-year cycle where we get a whole half the team changes after every World Cup. So it's about building relationships again and trust within the group, but also guiding them along the along the path of not assuming they know everything as much as the last group knew and starting again with you know here the fundamental building blocks and you're allowed to tell us if you're not feeling particularly good about things instead of you know just um shut up and get on with it we're not quite in that area often being an all black i think the players want to get out there and often we off have to protect them from injuring themselves and the protection is more just through making good decisions that are team focused and not just for individual needs and pete i want to finish with two things that um hopefully aren't the same um one is that there's a trend for marketing and people doing exercise programs and trying to make money on what may be just old exercises repackaged and we did talk about functional movement screen today so just start with one of those and we'll deal with the other one as well i think um in terms of any uh, exercise program in regards to looking at compliance sometimes the new packaged program that might come out from the exercise professional who's effectively selling a membership whether it's online or, or in a gym space or, or somewhere out in the community um, whether it's on the internet or the web community or you know within your own town uh, I guess they can divert the athlete from what their core requirements are so the main thing is is that and you know it's talked about in our workplace as a high performance supermarket always offers a solution but the main thing is to have the fundamental um, program in place before you start looking for the fluffers or at least the icing on the cake so we we just the main thing is is that when a new kind of opportunity comes up and you know sometimes it's the player's partner who's going along to a fitness group and all of a sudden your person wants to go uh, your player wants to go it's about the education well why and this is different training and even though it might be a good idea um, you're not actually you know built for this at the moment and it's probably not such a good idea why don't we just introduce a little bit and yes go with your partner once a week but just make sure you train at a 50% intensity you can kind of make sure the person feels they have a choice but at the same time they don't all, all of a sudden become part of a, a training paradigm and Pete what are some examples that come to mind without wanting you to get sued for um, <laughs> for many of these companies but we're not saying they're good or bad but this just for, for the listener to understand the sort of um, exercise concept we're talking about Oh, look, I think CrossFit has really been, um, you know, in the last decade or so, even some of our athletes have set up gyms associated with it. Again, it's the weekend warrior kind of mentality, and, and I love CrossFit. I think it's fantastic, but I don't know if it's it's a, an, an activity that should be, you know, undertaken regularly by a performance athlete, although I'm sure people in CrossFit might beg to differ, but they probably don't see the whole program in regards to what the athlete has to do. Some of the, the other nice functional programs, I'll call them nice because they do have their places like the Zoo program that's coming out at the moment. Um, again, that's a, a well-packaged program um, with great enthusiastic providers and athletes love the functional strength and it's challenging, so they'll go and do it. But again, in terms of the dose response for an athlete who's got all these other things on, it just has to fit carefully within the, within the realm of what that athlete's preparation is or should be. So yeah, so so Zoo's pretty trendy at the moment, and um, yeah, it's got some good things about it. It's just how it fits the athlete's preparation. That's important. And you mentioned this fancy new thing, Pilates. Oh yeah, we make jokes about Pilates. There's a guy in the twenties called Joseph who started it all, and I, I think the thing is, Pilates again has its place. 
Uh, but with when you've got providers in the community who are offering something and they're expert in that area, the main thing is you you work with the athlete to be part of that decision. I, I take the you know, to be involved with Pilates, for example, I'll go and meet the provider and just see how it actually fits. And invariably, it's a good place for the athlete to leave your kind of controlled team environment and go and do something that, you know, uh, may be good mentally and physically for their own prep. And I think if you go and meet the provider, you can help, you know, it'll fit then into your own model or at least vision of what they need to be doing for their own prep. So I don't get really threatened by it. But Pilates is another fantastic tool that's been around a very long time now. Um, and at the same time, it's better to be familiar with these things and, and engage with the people providing them than to kind of uh, throw them out with the bathwater. So, and just to be really clear, you know, none of those comments were negative about any of those activities. Yeah. But Pete was making the point that it needs to be in the context of the overall athlete's training program. If he's trying to get a particular load program through for an athlete for a week, then these things need to be taken into account. Yeah, I think it's like anything in terms of your kind of training continuum. If there's an unaccustomed activity and there's a spike of activity, then you're setting yourself up potentially for an injury, and I think we're seeing more of that um, in Gabbett's work at the moment in terms of the injury prevention kind of paradox or training paradox as well. And so that type of, that type of you know, let's lose, use some common sense around this and let's just not just jumping up to our neck about it. We're not, we won't throw it to the curb straight away. We just need to make sure that we're just not getting a spike in training that may really end up you being on the table with a niggle. We don't need that. Functional movement screen, there's quite a bit of debate about screening overall right now. So interested in your thoughts on the topic. Yeah, look, I think it's um, definitely, I've done a lot of reading in the FMS area, talked to mates in the, in the North America in particular, have used it for a long period of time now. Um, and I think, I def, definitely think it has its place as far as if you're stopping to just look and assess a group. I've done it with a number of university students over the years just to test the whole theory of you know, if you get 14 out of 21, you, you're at risk or below that, sorry, you're at risk of having an injury. And, you know, I think it, I think it's a good conversation starter. I think if you have the opportunity to stop, and it's one of many tools that are on the market, um, if, in, a, in a competitive season, unless you have a pre-season, it's very difficult to stop and use these tools effectively. If you think you need to look at it across the board um, and basically get a, a rough idea for your group and you can program from that group, then that's fine. It's part of your kind of philosophy. But it's not a, a one-stop shop in terms of fixing thing. We still really hang our hat more on previous significant injury and the functional impairments that you want to identify. Maybe FMS is doing that for you. Although for the specific injuries I've seen in the well-trained athlete who are used to doing kind of controlled movement patterns, I don't know if it's sensitive enough. But certainly for a more sedentary population, I could see that it would be a sensitive tool to at least you'd be used as a baseline before you put a, an intervention in place. Um, there are other great programs being developed, you know, in the US in particular. But again, it depends on how it fits the program. And as if you bring the program in, or the screening program, and have you got time for it, and is what you're getting out of it significant enough to make a difference on your preparation for that athlete? I think the the athlete, it's probably better than taking the shotgun approach to the whole population within your team. Really, maybe to focus on the individual that's deconditioned over a period of time or had a significant injury, to really stop, film them, have a look, use a screening tool, and use it as a baseline so that they can at least be motivated basically to improve upon that. So I like the concept, but in terms of screening and stopping and having a breath and using tools like the FMS, but at the same time, you've got to make sure that it doesn't clutter your environment with more information that you haven't really got time to enact on anyway. So I think, you know, keep using your clini clinical kind of nous 
And if you have to stop and take a look here, use a screening tool. But you're right, we're not quite sure how significant the information is when we really need it. Thanks a lot for your time today, Pete, and good luck with the All Blacks. Yeah, we hope to have another great year. It started off a ride right against the Welsh, and that was a great series, and look forward to uh, what's ahead. So thank you. And that was Peter Gallagher, the physio for the All Blacks. And thanks for joining this PJSM podcast where we were in New Zealand as guests of Sports Physio New Zealand. And those who are listening to this before September the 18th, there's the Super Conference in New Zealand for Sports Physios featuring Jill Cook, Jeremy Lewis and others. 